Thank you, thank you. Um, I've been telling, uh, you can hear me okay? Yeah, I've been telling uh, several people, and several people here already know about the book, uh, Lewis Hyde's book, The Gift, uh, Imagination and the Erotic Life of Property, and th this has been such a gift. Thank you for inviting me, and, and I hope you're in, you know, what a, what a gift community. It's so great to sort of plug into the uh, eroticism. Uh, in the Lewis Hyde sense. Um, uh, uh, you didn't make any sort of statement about cell phones, and uh, there is that sign out there, so I don't know like the traditions here, but what I'd like you to do if you have your cell phones is to get them out and turn them on. Um, what I'm going to do is um, give you my phone number, and uh, during the reading, as things go on, you know, if you get bored, I'm going to read a lot of things, you know, if you're bored, if you want to talk to each other, you know, just go ahead and uh, send me a text uh, uh, or text each other. Um, so, does does the cell phones work in here? I mean, so, okay, great. I'm um, so I'm really okay. So here's my number two zero five. I started this. Uh, I was working at Altoona. Uh, at Penn State Altoona, I only worked the big venues, um, and uh, th they had forced freshmen to come hear me. They didn't know me, you know, they didn't know what they were doing, you know, and so, and they were so sweet though, I, I looked up from the reading and they were all like this, and I said, and I stopped and I said, they can't, th they don't think you can see them, you know, and, they, and I said, are you texting? And they said, uh-huh, they're so cute, they're freshmen, they didn't know to lie, you know, and so, and, and I said, who, who are you texting? And they pointed at each other in the room, and I said, I went in on that, you know, uh, uh, so, um, so I've been doing this ever since. Uh, it, it is amazing to think now that we do exist in a kind of electromagnetic soup, you know, especially as writers, we're surrounded by text now, right now. I mean, all we need is a handheld device to sort of draw it out of the air. And uh, so I, I like that idea. If I were really good, though, if I were like the kids, uh, I'd be able to text you back as I'm reading, but I can't, I can't do that. Um, okay, so it's 205, 205-310-2932. <laughs> and I said I'm going to read uh, from a lot of different books um, that, that you mentioned, Gary. Um, I'm going to start with the book Michael Martone. I love books that have names of you know, characters for the title, uh, you know, Jane Eyre, David Copperfield, Huckleberry Finn, Michael Martone. Um, and uh, what, what the book is, I mentioned it to some of you, uh, it is a collection of contributors notes. I think of it as my memoir. And you know what a contributors note is, it's the thing in the back of the book. Um, and there are 50 of these contributors notes. And uh, um, when I started writing them, I would send them out to magazines. And the magazines, you know, would sometimes take them. And then I would negotiate with the editor, asking the editor to put them in the contributors note section. And often they, they would, and so I, I'm in magazines where I do not appear in the table of contents because I'm in the contributor's notes section. Uh, sometimes, though, the editor will write back and say, no, no, we're going to put it in the front part of the book. Could you send me a contributor's note? <laughs> and so I'd send another one of my contributor's notes. And, no, no, send a real contributor's note. These are real contributor's notes. Um, okay, so here it is. Uh, I'll just read one. And also, I'm terrible with titles. Uh, I am. I'm terrible. So this, all of them are titled contributor's note. Contributor's note. Michael Martone was born in Fort Wayne, Indiana 
and was educated in the public schools there. His first published work, a poem titled Recharging Time, and a character sketch, Tim the Experience, about his brother, appeared in the Forum, an annual literary magazine produced by the school system featuring contributions of its students. His mother, a high school freshman English teacher at the time, in fact, wrote the poem and the character sketch, <laughs> signing her son's name to the work and sending it into the editor, another English teacher at a Southside Junior High School who had been a sorority sister, Cap Alpha Theta, in college. Indeed, most of his papers written for school were written by his mother. Examples included English research papers, history term papers, translations from the Latin, speeches, and lab reports. It began innocently enough with his mother writing his essays, the prose supposedly dictated by the son to his mother, whose penmanship was far and away more legible. This arrangement, her son sitting across the kitchen table, in a sense, thinking out loud as she transcribed his thoughts with the same pen she used to grade her own students' papers, engendered in her a very active editorial intervention, which began to shape the spontaneous utterances emanating from her son. Soon the situation evolved to the point where her son sat silently while she wrote an original response to his initial prompt. Once she finished the first draft, she read it back to her son who made a few minor suggestions as to form, style, and content. It was at this time and under these conditions that Martone began thinking of himself as a writer. His mother promoted that view in other ways, announcing to her friends at the local chapter of the Educational Honorary that her son had an aptitude for writing. The collaboration continued through college where assignments were mailed home and returned, or in some extreme cases, the prose response was communicated via the telephone and copied out in a rather cramped and illegible longhand in the dormitory phone booth. Most of Martone's first book of stories and his occasional essays on the subject of writing published under his own name were written by his mother, who learned finally to type in 1979, the year she wrote his graduate thesis. <laughs> Today, Martone receives microcassette recordings his mother has made of his future work, with the hard copy arriving by fax or courier, with little or no intervention, uh, interaction between the collaborators prior to the work's appearance. Martone Tone is hard-pressed to tell you what exactly of his published work could truly be said to be his own original contribution, if any, including this contributor's note and the contribution published somewhere else in this magazine. <laughs> so, that's, that's, so that's the gist of that. Um, that's the gist of, um, of that, of, of contributors' notes. Um, in it, uh, Michael Mortone's mother dies nine times. My own mother is a bit disturbed by that. Um, and I tell, you know, I, I tell her, it's, it's a, child, a kind of childhood wish fantasy. You know, I, if, I, if I kill you, I can bring you back, you know, and 24 others, you're there, you know. Uh, I can bring you back, I can keep you alive that way. But I said, you know, finally, it's, it's Michael Martone's mother, not my mother, so I don't know if she gets the nuance. Uh, I'm going to try something, I'm going to try something new. I, I mentioned this to a couple of you. Uh, there's this, you, you know, uh, prose writers, uh, so, they, they want to be poets sometimes, and, you know, and also the way publishing is now, it's crazy. Uh, editors have to come up with new ideas for kinds of stories. And so there's a new one out. You know, do this at home, folks. It's great. Hint fiction. 
hint fiction. And here it is. Here, there's the deal. And this is what happens with prose, is that they can't do anything as far as, you know, style and stuff like that except word count. So hint fiction is only 25 words. And so I'm going to try some of that. Now, what I like about these short forms, flash fictions, short fictions, what I like about it, you know, is that they, they in the word count, they never count the title. So you can have very long titles, you know, and, and get around it that way. Okay, so I'm going to read a couple of these hint fictions. And, uh, and this is from a series uh, of sort of strange federal jobs. So it's really about, a, it's a bunch of bureaucrats. The EPA diver mapping the turbid outflow emanating from the Tully Valley mud boils enters the eutropic waters of Lake Onondaga. In the murk there a reef looms 10 meters deep, smashed shards of china. I find a cup intact, inside slosh silver dregs of mercury. The semi-retired special agent of the FBI waits on the platform of the metro for the next train to Rockville. Last on the tour, I demonstrate the Thompson. Full auto, spent shells, fly. Kids fight over brass casings. It's a crime, a waste, my life. An analyst from the National Climactic Data Center in Asheville, North Carolina, visits the grave of the author O. Henry. It doesn't add up. Knowing more, we know less. Along the Blue Ridge, the blue cloud bank disguised as smoke, it turns out, is smoke. <laughs> the pregnant attorney from the office of the Legislative Council pauses in Statuary Hall where John Quincy Adams, it is said, eavesdropped on the opposition. The parabolic dome echoed, echoes they tried to damp with scarlet curtains. I've heard its heartbeat, the bill in my briefcase stillborn. And finally, Tuesday, Boston Light, Brewster Island, 42 degrees, 19 minutes, 40.85 seconds north, 70 degrees, 53 minutes, 24.26 seconds west, the last manned lighthouse in the United States. The keeper writes when the light, flashing white, every 10 seconds shines. Zero, one, two, three hours. Seas calm, pressure falling, skies severely, clear, stars disappearing, one by one. That's the first time I read it. What do you, what do you think? No, no, not too bad. I, 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 I like reading those, too. Um, I don't think you mentioned this book. Uh, I wrote, I, don't, I tell you, I tell my students this, I cannot do plot, I cannot do character. Um, so what I do is uh, I had to find a book, a fiction book that has no plot, no character. My solution, a fake travel guide to Indiana. <laughs> the joke being, of course, nobody tours Indiana, right? You go through Indiana, you don't tour Indiana. Even people in Indiana don't tour Indiana. So when I started writing these bits, um, you know, you know, tour guide prose, 
Um, I sent it off not to literary magazines, but to newspapers in Indiana. And again, I love negotiating with editors. And so I sent it to the editor and I said, could you publish this in your newspaper without mentioning that I made it up? <laughs> you know, it was actual things to do. I wanted to pass. And uh, so that's what I tried. So I'm going to read a couple things. I, I actually brought the parts that, because I th knew that there would be some painters and some artists here, you know, the, the Indiana part of the, the thing that's, uh, um, that has to do with art. Uh, <laughs> not much in Indiana, believe me. Um, uh, we call it the Blue Guide to Indiana, and you know the Blue Guides, right? The Blue Guide to London, Paris, the Blue Guide to Indiana. I actually, of course, got sued by the Blue Guide. I've now almost hit the trifecta. I've invaded privacy, and you haven't lived, writers, until you've received a cease and desist order. Um, I've, I've now infringed uh, trademark. Uh, the Blue Guide came after us really hard. Uh, and uh, I hope uh, I'm going to read a story that I think will be an infringement on copyright. And that's why I'm going to read it tonight. So, uh, but okay, so here's the Blue Guide. This is from the part um, that is just various cities to tour, little towns in Indiana. And the name of this town is Rising Sun, Indiana. Here, as elsewhere in the region, the inhabitants of Rising Sun have placed, I mean, you get the concept, right? I mean, this is a tour guide, okay. Um, have placed their factories on the village's eastern boundary, all the better to allow the effluent from their, effluent from their industry to flow downstream, so to speak, in the prevailing wind. However, here the natives serve an immediate market by manufacturing each morning the day itself and construct the special apparatus necessary to levitate the daily details of light and color above the town. The nation's third largest consumer of helium, Rising Sun, Indiana, is famous for its fleet of cloud-camouflaged blimps and squadrons of transparent zeppelins which lift the dye gel flats of sky into the sky. Wing walkers on jump jets spot weld each afternoon's I-beam dome of heaven. Gyrocopters tow V-strings of simulated waterfowl in migration. Helicopters hover, hanging the bright first-order Fresnel lens, which counterfeits the evening star. Not to be missed are the quaint Indigo Works tours daily, where the invention of a new blue each day is routine. The craftsmen of Rising Sun build their work and build into their work an obsolescence. Each night, the remnants of the day can be seen drifting overhead. Odd-shaped shadows shift beneath what is thought to be a real moon, but it is often disappointing. Now, kids, I know out there you love the PBS, and we're very upset that perhaps the PBS is going to be is going to be cut in uh, you know in this current Congress. But you love the PBS. So what, what what are the shows? What are the shows you like to watch on the PBS? What what? what? Downton Abbey. Downton Abbey, wonderful show, terrific. But that's not the one I'm thinking of here. Antiques. Sesame Street, also very good, terrific. That's oh, a, Antiques Roadshow. Antiques, oh, Antiques Roadshow, we love the Antiques. And in this old house, we love that one. But that's not the one. That's not the one you kids really love. Mr. Rod, always oh, very good. It's very sad. <gasps> what? Bob Fosse? Not Bob Fosse. You're close. I know who you're thinking of. There's this guy. There's this guy who has a huge afro. And, <laughs> 
not reading rainbow, huge afro, and what he does is paint, he paints, yes, his name is Bob Ross. He is, he's, he's departed, he's gone now, Bob Ross, but see, you kids, you know the Bob Ross. Yeah, guess where he's from? Indiana. <laughs> He's from Indiana, and so in the tours, the various tours, there's the tour to the waste disposal sites of Indiana, there's the sex tour, the death tour, and there's also the art tour uh, to Indiana, but there's only one stop, and that's in Muncie, Indiana, in the Musée de Bob Ross. The Musée de Bob Ross. I love saying that, the Musée de Bob Ross. Uh, what do you need to know about Muncie? You probably already know it. That's where Ball State University is. Ball State gets its endowment from cans, the people who make the ball jar. That's the money. So that's a university out of cans. Uh, that's also where David Letterman went to school. And there is the Letterman Scholarship where you must maintain a C or lower. Uh, to, so, so actually, I didn't make that one up. I mean, you know. So Indiana does have a kind of, so okay, so this is the other thing from the Blue Guide to Indiana, uh, the Musée de Bob Ross. Housed in a converted and renovated Ball Brothers department store in downtown Muncie, the Musée de Bob Ross is home to the world's largest collection of the works by the late master Bob Ross. Over 8,000 paintings are in inventory, while several hundred are displayed at any one time in the museum's 12 galleries. Most of them are painted live while being taped during the widely syndicated television show produced by Muncie Public TV. They're displayed chronologically to give the visitor a sense of Ross's progression of technique and his many chromatic periods which culminate in the final umber phase predominant at the time of his untimely death. With a palette more extensive than every major artist save Delacroix, Mr. Ross's repetitive renderings of his special motif, a placid lake in an ancient fir forest, is made new with each painting. The artist's actual palettes are themselves displayed on the mezzanine, where the visitor can appreciate Bob Ross's meticulous craft in the mixing of his paints, preserved in a kind of fossil record, which in its energy and elan rivals the most enthusiastic abstract expressionist works. Also of interest is the faithful recreation of the artist's studio in what was once woman's lingerie, where Mr. Ross's easel, his primed and stretched canvases, and his tubes of paint are arrayed in the manner they were found upon his passing. Here, too, are the myriad varieties of brushes and palette knives, as well as the extensive collections of combs and hair picks, and a selection of his favorite models, such as the potted Norfolk Island pine, a boulder from Jasper Beach in Maine, and a sky chart from the National Aeronautic and Space Administration showing the different categories of clouds. In the museum's entry vestibule, a bank of television monitors constantly features tapes of the master at work. These tapes, along with posters, postcards, refrigerator magnet reproductions of that work, may be purchased in a tastefully appointed gift shop where visitors will also discover the complete library of Mr. Ross's instructional media. There is also the Happy Little Tree Cafe, which specializes in Nouvelle Cuisine. Um, so, um, the guy, I, if, writers, if you want to go into this business to make money, what you're going to write is textbooks. And there's a guy in Muncie at Ball State named Joe Trimmer who has the big bucks. And so I read this in Muncie, yeah, and, I, and you know, he said, he came up afterwards and he said, you know, I'm going to buy you one of those paintings. I said, that, well, that's great, you know. And so he went out, he actually found a Bob Ross original painting, 5,000 bucks. He bought it. 
because he's Joe Trimmer. He's got the dough, and but he didn't give it to me. Damn him. Uh, he did, instead, he gave it to the university, and it's in their union there. So you can actually go and see a Bob Ross original that was meant for me. Uh, okay. So that's the blue guide. And um, I should tell you that uh, some of those things, there, there was the religious tour. And in the religious tour, one of the things is there is actually a convent in, Jas or in uh, Ferdinand, Indiana. And uh, so nearby in Jasper, Indiana, I placed uh, another convent that was Our Lady of Big Hair and Feet. And uh, it was a beauty parlor where the, the nuns would give pedicures and hairdos. And, and, uh, and that was published in Indi Indianapolis Magazine as something to do, you know. <laughs> and so, so the editor gets a call from, from the nuns from Ferdinand who've gone down to Jasper to get their hair done. Uh, I know, it's ter it was terrible. It was awful. And we had to say, no, 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 we, we made that up. Uh, <laughs> There was also, the death tour uh, contains things like um, the cemetery uh, in, um, in Roselawn, which has a, a naked city, the largest nudist colony in the country is in Indiana. And uh, so they're buried in the nude there. And then there's the tomb of Orville Redenbacher uh, and, and the, uh, the uh, memorial for those killed in trailer parks and mobile home courts by tornadoes. Uh, and um, and then finally, uh, because I Indiana's famous for its um, ca caskets, uh, chances are if you are going to be buried in caskets, you will be buried in a Batesville casket that's made in Indiana. Um, and so I put the Federal Research Facility for Caffin uh, ca uh, casket and coffin standards in there and it, you know they're testing it they're setting them on fire and and you know putting them in wind tunnels and and uh, and so I got a call I got a call from the uh, from the guy from the Washington Post and he said uh, I'm doing a story on little-known federal facilities uh, you know do you I, I've got this line on this place in Indiana that's testing caskets and do you know anything about that and I said well I do happen to know the things about it. and they said well I said I made it up he said oh he said that was one of the better ones <laughs> all right so um, Gary did mention that uh, I wrote a book called uh, and this is the Hoosier pronunciation Pensees not Pensee Pensees the thoughts of Dan Quayle which translates of course as thoughts the thoughts of Dan Quayle. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Ohio and Virginia argue over who has had the most presidents, but there is no doubt who has had the most vice presidents. Indiana. And you know them, five of them. Three more were on tickets that were failed. It had, had Hillary Clinton you know, gone, she would have had Evan Baez. I, I mean, we are just the, the birthplace of vice presidents. Dan Quayle being the most recent. You remember the other ones. You probably collected the cards when you were kids. Um, uh, there was uh, Schuyler Colfax. There is uh, John Marshall, who gave us the phrase about the vice presidency, which is, this, isn't, this job isn't worth a bucket of a warm spit. Uh, he also said that what this country needs is a good five cent cigar. Uh, intellectual giants, all of them. Um, so um, Dan Quayle was my representative in Congress when I wrote my first book and I did what we all do when we write our first books and publish our first books. I sent him a copy uh, and uh, he wrote back and he said, you know, dear Michael, your, your heartwarming stories of Indiana, please us all keep up the good work. Uh, I framed that and in years later um, I, uh, you know, I was looking around for something to do. By that time, he was vice president, and I said, I looked at it, permission, you know. So I, I wrote this book. It, it, 
I, I, we brought it out at a very special time, and we brought it out in a special edition. And that is, you, you kids, you're too young, but there used to be a guy named Mao Zedong who ran the People's Republic of, of China, and uh, he had a little red book of his thoughts. <laughs> the little red book it was called, right? You, you remember, right, Tom? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and so my book, uh, the, the Dan Quayle book, is, looks exactly like Mao's book, except it is gray. It's the little gray book. And uh, uh, also, we brought it out at the time that he was beginning to think about running for presidency. And you know what they have to do is that they have to write their own book. And so he had just written his memoir. Uh, and uh, even though, of course, somebody else wrote it. So I wrote one, too, for him. Uh, and uh, um, his parents owned the Indianapolis Star. And so they were doing a kind of Citizen Kane on the book. You know, if you've seen Citizen Kane, it, you know, the, the opera is covered in all the different ways. So they covered it as a news story, as a political story, as an art story, as a financial story. His, Dan Quayle's book. So they had to cover my book, because we brought it out at the same time, as a sidebar news story, which meant they had to go to Dan Quayle and interview him about my book. And so they asked him, you know, what do you think of this Michael Martone? And, and he said, who's he? And so I have that framed. You know, that's right next to you. Yeah, <laughs> All right, so there are 12 thoughts. Dan Quayle has 12 thoughts. Uh, and like Pascal, they're on something. They're on Barbie and Ken, on the State of the Union, on the Planet of the Apes, uh, on, uh, what else, uh, on anesthesia. Uh, you know, and so I'm going to read, uh, how many of you know what snipe hunting is? How many of you don't know what snipe hunting is? Okay, note who does not know what snipe hunting is, and we'll go out later. So, the, okay, so you get the concept of this. This is Dan Quayle thinking, uh, and it's on snipe hunting. They told me to wait, so I wait. They gave me a burlap sack and pushed me out of the car into the ditch next to the field. I watched the taillights disappear. They told me they would drive the snipes my way. Wait here, and I do. Stars are in the sky. I'm in a mint field. The branches of the low bushes brush against my legs, releasing the reeking smell. I think, suddenly, they are not coming back. Back home, they are waiting for me to figure, figure this out, that they are not at this moment, or that they're not coming back. They are thinking of this moment, the one happening now, when I think this thought that they're not coming back, and then I come home on my own. But, I think, I'll wait. While waiting, I'll think of them waiting for me to return home with the empty burlap sack. They'll think that I haven't thought yet that I was left here in the mint field, that I'm waiting for them to drive the stipes my way. I'll let them think that. In the morning, I will be here waiting. They will come back looking for me. The, uh, the dew will have collected on the mint bushes. The stars will be there, but they'll be invisible. I won't have thought that thought yet, the one they wanted me to think. The imaginary quarry is still real and still being driven my way. Um, Dan Quayle is, by the way, the only vice president with a vice presidential library. 
Uh, all the presidents have got them, but uh, he has he has a vice presidential library. I did not make this up. If you're in Huntington, Indiana, go to the vice presidential library. Uh, and the, boy, the website's great. The, the gift shop, highball glasses with Dan Quill's picture on them. Uh, you know, golf towels. I mean, it's terrific. Um, so I took a couple of the books up there to donate. Gift, gift economy to donate uh, the, the, the books. Uh, they were a little bit hesitant, but I convinced them it sh these should be in the, so I gave them a couple books and then I took them off my taxes and everybody was happy. <laughs> okay, so uh, you're all right? I mean, it's so, so far okay? A lot of messages coming in? Okay, I'm gonna finish up here with a little bit of longer piece. Um, I just finished a book, it'll be coming out. I mentioned it to, to some of you at, at lunches, dinners, conferences. It's called Four for a Quarter. And it's based on uh, the old photo booths. They're now like four for a dollar or two dollars if you can even find them, you know. And I don't mean the Polaroid ones where it takes four pictures, but the sequential ones, you know, that's very important. I have my students for their final uh, actually uh, tell a story by means of photo booth. You know, so they have to just take four pictures in sequence and somehow convey some sort of narrative, you know, with this, the pictures. And I've noticed that, you know, because I've taken a lot of these things, I've got, you know, tons of them, uh, but I noticed, and we were talking about this at, at lunch the other day, um, that, you know, usually you go like this, you know, the first picture, and then, and then the third picture, yeah, you know, like, uh, real crazy, so it's a, and then the fourth one is like, better get a good one. Yeah, you know, I mean, and so I love that, I love that rhythm, you know, that da, 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 uh, yeah, and, uh, and so, um, so anyway, uh, I wanted, and I started at when I was 44, and, and when I turned 54, I ended the project, so I, I wrote 44 of these, of these things that are based on fours, uh, the four chambers of the heart, the four winds, the four seasons, the four corners of the earth, the four corners of states, the four questions of Passover, the, let's see, the, the four gospels, the, um, uh, the plus four, uh, four and a hand tie. Uh, the final four is in there. Uh, yeah, since we're in March now. Um, uh, four dead in Ohio. Um, oh, what else? Uh, four calling birds. I mean, you'll think of something. The Fab Four. Um, I, and once you start thinking about it, it's very, very interesting. Four is the only number in English that has the number of letters that it is. You know, it's squares. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Whoa, I know, oh my God. Oh, it's heavy, heavy stuff. Uh, so I, I've been living with four a long time. Uh, so so that, that book will come out in the fall, uh, uh, four for a quarter. Um, and uh, it, uh, so I thought I'd read uh, one of the pieces. And this is the one that I think I may not be able to may not be able to publish, so we're maybe breaking the law even though you're taping this. Um, and that is, uh, for some of you, you, you as kids, you, you like the comic books. Um, there's DC Comics and there's also Marvel Comics. This is a group in Marvel called the Fantastic Four. Um, if, some of you know the Fantastic Four? You know the Fantastic Four? Oh, is that right? Did I? Ah, the Fantastic Four. Yes. Hey, I am good. I'm better than I thought. Um, the Fantastic Four. For those of you who don't know about terrible movies, terrible movies. But the, the, I was actually more a DC person, but I do like the Fantastic Four. All you need to know is in this comic world, this comic narrative, uh, four people are sent into outer space where they're cosmically irradiated, and they come back to Earth significantly changed. 
okay? And so thanks a lot again for coming out. This is my final thing. The sex life of the Fantastic Four. <laughs> Invisible girl. Where he touches me, I vanish. The back of his hand stroking my face erases my cheek. Involuntary, the skin initially, then the deeper flesh, the skin first, gone when it feels his fingertips. I feel the surface disappear, but still feel feeling there. His touch sinks in, the subdermal layers go, the nested cells he polishes clear, his soft palm hovering. By the time I've stripped off the blue bodysuit, stepping out of the spandex which retains for a second the shape of my body as it falls, the body it reveals has already become translucent, the meat turning milky, the bone wiped clear in streaks like a smear of butter melts the white from a paper plate. I become clarified grease beneath him, Entwined, we are tangled up in the skein of my airy senu, the ropey braids of my circulatory system, its cartoons of ro its cartoon of primary reds and blues. My blood thins in the extremities, but knots at the nodes of erectile tissue, clotting a nipple visible again beneath the sheen he has left from licking what looked a moment before like air. Now, me, there, concentrated into rubbery, ruby light again. It disappears into his mouth. I'm down to the broken dashes of the central nervous system, suggesting, still outlining, the outer neural net of my skin, feeding me the synaptic code of dots and dits from the dissipating periphery. His hands, as they caress nothing, reveal me to myself, leave the after image of his movement burned upon the transparent wall of my retina, the lightning streak of his skin shaping the borders of my own body. I, I close my eyes and watch as my eyelids dissolve. My vision passes through skin first, turning then to scrim, to see now through another unoccluded lens. I see through my lids, through myself. I see his cock clearly moving inside the vast and now empty space, which must be me and must be not me. The Human Torch. I sit at the bar usually drinking ouzo neat. A Jordan almond dissolving at the bottom of the shot glass. I've set the liqueur on fire, swizzling it with my finger. I like to watch the floor show and the show on the floor. The tunnel crowd weirded out by the drag queens doing strip teases or singing old torch songs. One more for my baby, one more for the road. Sending up Lady Day or Barbara, that kind of thing. I dump some water into my aperitif, extinguishing the blue flame and turning the drink chalky with the precipitate, in a, like it's precipitate in a test tube. My current favorite is Eliza interpreter who vamps this obscure number, is it by Mercer, which plays with the line, you've let yourself go. She sings to her lug of a lover how he's grown fat and dull, how their liaison has suffered the consequences. There follows a litany of complaint. What a schlub, she sings. You've let yourself go. But it turns in the end. It, it always turns in the end. Come on over here, she whispers. Come on over and let yourself go. I tear up, naturally. But it isn't saline staining my cheek. It's a dab of molten lava percolating there in the corner of my eye, my own brand of running mascara. I have to watch myself. 
Spontaneously, my eyelashes can ignite, throwing sparks up into the tinder of my eyebrows, which can smolder for hours without my knowing. Once I set the sprinklers off in the Russian bathhouse on 10th. I've stopped looking for a boy who can top me. It's too dangerous. The leather bar's too hot. I was cooking inside the horsehide Eisenhower jacket, cooking the jacket, the seared meat smell, an additional turn on, I suppose. These powers we've acquired seem to fall into the dark space between the involuntary responses wired into us all and those we can modulate. Not like the heartbeat on the one hand, or walking home on the other, but like blinking or winking itself, say, or like desire. There is only so much one can do to help oneself. Oh, sure, I can bellow flame on all I want, followed by the stunning transformation from solid buff flesh to superheated gaseous vapor, the controlled burn. Here, precision scalding, there, the delicate sweating of copper pipes. But it is in my weaker moments, when I'm weak in my knees, a stranger's hand on my hand will steam off skin. I can't watch myself all the time. A human touch sets off this human torch. I'm a captive within my own sublime hide. Mr. Fantastic. To make the edge of the famous samurai swords of antiquity, the smiths beat the iron flat into foil and then folded the metal over and hammered it flat again, and then another fold and peening, and still another and then another, thousands of times, fold and flatten, fold and flatten, until in this primitive way, through brute force and patience, the metal's crystalline structure became saturated with itself. Atoms were packed inside the spaces between atoms. At last, both the surface and simultaneously its underside, now no more than a molecule deep, the edge of the matrix serrated only by a minute adulation of subatomic matter, a sine wave spanning a mere handful of angstroms of the outermost electron shell. Sharp, you bet. It is what I find myself doing to my own skin in private moments. I stretch and fold and knead it back together, a wrinkle in the loose hide of my forearm, a flap of fat at my chin. It is the very definition of definition, and I spend hours honing my musculature, ironing in the pleats on my belly, increasing the cant of my cheekbones with the finest shade of a sharpened pencil line. I know what people are thinking. The elasticity of your normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill, uncosmically irradiated penis is itself a goddamn miracle to most. The way it inflates, its skin thinning to the gauziest of tissues, webbed by a diaphanous capillary sponge grown thick with a stiffened rebar of packed and interlocking corpuscles. Sure, I've tried it all. Swallowed myself whole, took myself and myself from behind, for a while, she liked to watch it snake toward her across the floor, liked the way it coiled up her leg and then threaded the cleft of her rear, whipping around her waist, then back up her back, curling over her shoulder and back down between her breasts, down her stomach, parting her down, down there, and then her labia, and into her from above, how its tensile strength lifted her in this harnessed harness, held her weightless as it expanded within her and all around her. We haven't done that in a while. 
And everything, everything, believe me, grows familiar. Recently, our lovemaking has tended toward the less Baroque. A simple vertical embrace, my member remembering its scale from before the accident. Sue, her legs wrapped around my waist, is saddled on my hips, writing this altogether unfantastic appendage, and me supporting her, strapping my silly, pliant arms around her, and then around me, and then around her again. Stretching another lap and lapping another lap, another band around us both, belting us to us, my arms still encircling, encasing us from head to toe, the cocoon spinning while we kiss, my, my elasticity nearing its end, a face to the point of transparency, my thinning skin becoming at last the clear outer covering at last of this new creature we create. And finally, the thing. I don't really need the briefs down below since my thing ain't there no more. It's more for show, to let the folks know I was once a guy. A scrap of cloth for modesty of the citizens craning their necks to take a gander at me. They can't get past that orangey crust of skin. It's something, all right. Little do they know that I'm all hanging out there for anybody to see. My Johnson, or what I take to be my Johnson, Johnson's really, I don't know since there's no other thing like me as far as I can tell to let me try out these doohickeys of wadded calluses and thingamabobs of oozing mucus is plopped there in front of their collective noses. Just more eruptions and rashes on the sliding plates of my scaly surface. The doc explained it to me, showed me the tinker toy models of your typical twisted normal gene, and then how mine's been tripled. Another worm squirming around that ladder of goofy golf balls. It's simple for everybody but me, male and female, male and female, down to everybody's bones but me, but no bones for me, no in or out, no on and off, a whole other dimension of nookie. What I've become needs a couple other things to reproduce, I guess, not just one other. Sex, as near as I can figure, it's like nothing you can dream of since those dirty pictures your brain's pumping out are made up of, you've got it, those same twin strands caught wrapped up in each other. Well, I am another other, and I'm on the lookout for other others like me. Meantime, when I'm alone, but this could be in the middle of Times freaking square, a public spectacle where the public can't begin to see the me that's me, I make myself have this nameless thing. I feel this thing thing. I have no words, no more for. Thank you very much.